Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored, The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to begin with verse 1 and cover really quite a bit of territory today because the flow of it is such that if you break it up too much you may lose what, what Paul is saying. So we're going to increase a little bit today in this message. Sometimes we focus on a word, sometimes we focus on a verse, and sometimes we focus on a whole passage. And basically that's what we're going to be doing this morning. The title of what I'd like to share with you is Denying Self for the Sake of Others. Part one, (laughs) Denying Self for the Sake of Others. I don't know if you've learned it yet or not, I'm sure you have, but it's, it's very difficult, if next to impossible, to ever make a choice to deny yourself for the sake of somebody else unless, unless the love of God is in your heart. Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23 says that the fruit of the Spirit is love. I want to tell you something. It is unnatural for the flesh ever, ever, ever to give up its rights, to give up its privileges and deny itself for the sake of anybody. That's unnatural to the flesh. But it's very natural to the Spirit of God. So a person has got to be filled with the Spirit of God before he'll ever make that choice. Not only does it enable him to, to, to do it, but it even quickens in his heart the very desire to do it. It is God's love produced by the Spirit of God that Galatians says in chapter 5, verse 14, is the fulfillment of the law that must be present in our lives for us to come to the place we would make that kind of choice. See, the love of Christ is what motivated the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ controls us. Matter of fact, the King James Version says constrains us. The word control or constrain is the word sineco. Sine is an intensifier meaning together. And the word echo means to have, to have together. The, the idea, though, is when it's used figuratively, as it is in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, it means to compel somebody to do something, to press them on towards doing something. It's a motivating force within a person's life. The, the power of the Holy Spirit producing this love of Christ. That's why we always talk about being attached to Him. That's why Paul's message, attach yourself to Him. Unless you're living surrendered, attached to Him, that love is not going to be there. Well, in chapter 8, by the way, the Corinthian church needed to hear this message. Of all the churches in the New Testament, the Corinthian church needed to hear it. Arrogant people is all they were. He called them fusio, which means you're big, giant airbags. That's all you are. You got a lot of talk, you have no walk behind it. 
because you're not, you don't have the love of Christ mixed in there. You see, this is why when you go to church, you can learn all the right things to say. You can see how it ought to be done. You can have all the discipline, the doctrine, and everything else. But if you don't have the love of Christ within you, all of that is nullified. That's what Paul is trying to tell them to the Corinthian church. They needed to hear this. In chapter 8, they're asking him questions, and their question concerned, should we eat meat sacrificed to idols? Now, Paul took some time in explaining this, but brings out a beautiful principle that this comes right into chapter 9. In verse 1, he immediately in chapter 8 says that knowledge makes a person arrogant. That's that same word, by the way, fusio. But then he says, love edifies. See, that love of Christ edifies. It builds your brother up. But the knowledge without the love just makes you arrogant. You've, you've got all the answers. You can't be taught, you see. That's the whole idea. Love edifies. Love is a thing that is key. The bottom line of his answer in chapter 8 to their question, should we eat meat sacrificed to idols, is this. Many of you, he says, you already know this. You know all things. You know that it won't affect your standing in, under grace and in Christ to eat meat sacrificed to idols because there's no such thing as an idol as far as God's concerned. There's only one true God, and you know him to be your father. But the bottom line is this. Are you willing to give up that right for the sake of the weaker brother who does not understand that? That's his whole principle. And then Paul comes down to verse 13 and he gives his own convictions concerning that. And he says, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. You see, the apostle Paul lived out what he preached. And I want to tell you something, folks. As a preacher to you, it's easier to preach this stuff than it is to live it. It's easier to say it to your brother. It's easier to tell somebody else about it but when you have to live it yourself, that's when it gets down. That's when the rubber hits the road. The Apostle Paul lived out what he preached. He had learned to make conscious decisions of self-denial for the sake of his brother in Christ. Now with this said, chapter 9 simply expands this truth. Paul laid the principle in chapter 8. Are you willing to deny your rights and privileges under grace for the, <coughs> for the sake of your weaker brother? I don't know what's hanging me up here. <clears throat> Sometimes I feel like I swallowed a, a rope. <laughs> I hope there's no calories in a rope. <clears throat> the first part of chapter 9, you don't really know where Paul's going. It's hard to grasp it. Uh, he starts off talking about the proof of his apostleship. And then he, then he moves on down to the privileges of being an apostle. And then it begins to come, become crystal clear. You've got to read the whole chapter before you can even understand where he's headed. He's just expanding what he already began in chapter 9. Eight. You see, this had become <clears throat> a way of life for him, to deny himself for the sake of others. And what I want to share with you this morning is it can become a way of life to you and to me if we'll just attach ourselves to Christ and let love be manifest through us. I want to share something with you from my heart. <clears throat> when we get to heaven one day, folks, the only, the only thing that's going to be there is people. Do we understand that this morning? And I want to share this with you. You don't burn bridges in the Christian faith and a lot of people are doing that. They get on the outs with one another and they burn the bridges. You don't burn the bridges because you're going to be standing next to them when we stand before Christ one day. And so whatever freedoms we have, if the love of Christ is not mixed in with it, with the knowledge of that freedom, then friends, we're going backwards, not forwards. Because we've got to be filled with his love to be sensitive to the weaker brother. And be careful, you may not realize who the weaker brother is. That's why always it falls as a responsibility into our life. No matter what you understand about grace, hey, that's fine. 
Mix it with the love of Christ and then you won't use what you understand to defeat your brother. Now that's godly love right there. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, just hang loose. I'm going to drink this. Ah. <laughs> Don't you wish you had some of that? <clears throat> oh, me. Sometimes my, my voice just caves in on me. I don't know what happened. You know, Paul had people that were examining him, evidently. And you can see this in the text. I call them the, those who had the gift of being offended. You ever know anybody like that? I mean, they lived to be offended. <clears throat> and Paul's offending them, obviously. And the questions that are coming to him are coming from arrogant, immature believers. And so, the Apostle Paul takes that into account and gives the answer that the Holy Spirit of God leads him to give. So, there are three things I want you to see in chapter 9. But remember, we're not going to finish this message. It's going to continue on. This is just part one of denying yourself for the sake of others. The first thing Paul does, and remember it's going to be confusing at first, but it will become crystal clear. He gives a proof of his apostleship. Now, what in the world is he doing? He gives them a proof of his apostleship. He says in verse 1 of chapter 9, Am I not free? <clears throat> Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Now Paul appeals to what they know about him. In New American Standard, it starts off with, Am I not free? <clears throat> King James starts off with, Am I not an apostle? Now, I'm not going to get into these textual arguments, but I like the King James better than I like the New American Standard because if you'll follow the flow of the text in chapter 9, his whole first focus is being an apostle. Even though having the freedoms of an apostle is going to come into play, he starts off with being an apostle. So I'm going to go that route with the verse, so don't get confused. He just reverses the order there in the King James. It appears to me this is, this is his main subject. So let's follow it. Am I not an apostle is the thing he says I think is his main point in verse 1. By saying I am, am I not an apostle is Paul's way of asserting that he is an apostle. He uses the present tense. As he speaks, he's an apostle. He was yesterday, he is that day, and he will be the next day. He is an apostle. Now listen to me. The word apostle is not a word that anybody else used in the scriptures except Jesus. Jesus took it out of, there's, there's no word in classical Greek for apostle. Jesus came up with that word. That's God's word himself. And that's the designation that Jesus gives to those that he not only called, but the ones he assigned with authority during the New Testament times. That's the word apostle. Now let's first of all look at the will that determined Paul's apostleship. Because you need to understand something. This wasn't by Paul's choice. This was by God's choice. You have to go back to verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 1 to discover this. The will <clears throat> that caused him to be an apostle. Whose will? It wasn't Paul's. Paul asserts the fact that he never sought after being an apostle. Matter of fact, it was quite the opposite. In verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It was God's divine providence that Paul was an apostle. Paul didn't go to a school to learn how to be an apostle. <laughs> Paul didn't know what one was until God got a hold of him. And it was God's assignment in his life. It was God's will that he was be, would be an apostle. Galatians 1.15 is a great verse to add into your, to, to your understanding of this. It says in verse 15 of Galatians 1, But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, 
<laughs> and called me through his grace. You know, when I studied that and we were, we were doing Romans, as a matter of fact, and I got over to that passage, it dawned on me that God knew that he was going to be an apostle even in his mother's womb. But you know how he was born? He was born a very legalistic Jewish man. And it's like the counsel of the Godhead in heaven said, you know what, I need an apostle to the Gentiles, and I guarantee you I need somebody that understands the law. Hot dog, I'm going to put Paul in his mother's womb, and I want him to be the one. I want him to grow up under the law. I want him to know every dot and tittle of it. I want him to understand it. And then one day I'm going to meet him on the Damascus Road, and I'm going to break him, and I'm going to use him as an apostle of grace to the Gentile world. I'll tell you what, I'd rather have a person that comes in from a legalistic background to understand grace any day of the week. You know why? Because they understand sin, they understand God, they understand the holiness of God, they understand what needs to be understood. So then when they come into grace, they don't ever look at it as license. They come in overwhelmed and grateful to be up under the message of grace. And God had the special man prepared from before the foundation of the world to be the man to take the message to the Gentile world. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas set out on their first missionary journey, the Holy Spirit of God, who's in a prayer meeting, spoke. And he says in verse 2 of Acts 13, and while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul. Now listen, for the work to which I've already called them. <laughs> they were already called. The church didn't send them out as if they were called. They just turned them loose and recognized the calling upon their life. Paul's apostleship was by the will of God. Now Paul wants them to understand this. God is the one who set him apart. But not only that, there shouldn't have been any doubt, but not only that, the way of an apostle. How does an apostle live? How does Paul as an apostle live? In what manner? How, what is the way that he lived, the way of his apostleship? Well, by being an apostle, Paul was not bound to any man. He was only bound to Christ. Now, this is very important to understand. He uses a term there that says, I, am I not free? Am I not free? That's the one that New American Standard puts first. King James puts second, so we're just taking it second here. Am I not free? The word free is the word, you ought to know it, Eleuthero. Where do we go doing a lot of our missionary work? <laughs> the island of Eleuthero comes from the very same word. It means to be free. It's an adjective which means capable of movement, the free one. In an absolute sense, it means free, unconstrained, unfettered, independent. That's a big meaning of the word. One who is not dependent upon another. In a relative sense, free or separate from or independent of. Now, Paul in his context here seems to pull the meaning of being free down to the fact of financial support. Paul did not depend upon anybody for his financial support. It's the a, it's a whole idea. He's a tent maker. As a matter of fact, that's how the church of Corinth really came to be. He went to Corinth. He met Priscilla and Aquila, Acts 18 teaches us, and they were making tents. Why? Probably because of the Ishmael games that came every so many years, and they would stay in tents. This is the way he funded his ministry. And so Paul was a tent maker. He was almost what we'd call bivocational. He said, I don't just support you. I don't depend on you. I don't depend on any man. I'm an apostle. I'm free. In verse 19 of chapter 9, he says, For though I am free from all men, I'm free from all men. Nobody supports me. I'm not bound to any man. Now, thirdly, so the way of, of his apostleship was God is the one who willed it, and the way that he lived was he was not bound to any man, not to any church, not to any man, not to any place. He was just bound to Christ. But then thirdly, the witness required of his apostleship. 
You see, to be proven as an apostle, you had to be a witness of the, of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says in verse 1, have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? And the word Lord there, obviously referring to resurrected Lord. He has a name now above every name. And so he's talking about the resurrected Christ. In the phrase, have I not seen Jesus, our Lord, he uses a word for seen. That is the word horao. And that's not the word blepo. Blepo means, yeah, I caught a glance of him. But the word horao has the idea, I saw, I understood, I fully perceived who he was. So not only did he just see him, he fully understood what he was seeing. Now, when did the Apostle Paul see the Lord Jesus Christ? He uses the perfect active indicative tense. Perfect tense was, it happened back here, which has caused me to be in the state I'm in right now. Active voice, I was fully involved. Indicative, write it down, it's true. Now, when did he see the resurrected Lord Jesus and fully perceive that he's who he was? Well, in Acts chapter 9, if you'd like to turn there, we have the history of it. And it's a little history lesson. But this is in full documentation now of his apostleship, the proof of his apostleship. And he wants to make sure that they got it. He says, am I not apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Acts chapter 9, verse 1. And you know, Everybody says, you know, I'm, I've been seeking Jesus, but I haven't found him yet. No, you're not seeking Jesus. No man seeketh after God, no, not one. It was God seeking after him, and it's God seeking after us. And you can see this from the text. It says in verse 1, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way. Now the term the way was what they had pegged Christians of that time both men and women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Boy, that was interesting, wasn't it? He was a, a policeman for the Pharisees, and he was going out to catch those who were saying that Jesus was the Christ because the Jews believed that the Messiah had not yet come. Verse 3, And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. I always get a kick out of this. He was going to arrest Christians and Christ arrested him on, on Damascus Road. He got arrested by the Christ of Christianity. And verse 4 says, And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting the church? And that's something for us to remember. You strike a member of Christ, you strike Christ. We saw that back in chapter 8. You actually affect him. Paul said, why, Christ said, why are you persecuting me? What did Paul say? Who, not what. <laughs> and he said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Immediately he recognized the fact of who he was. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. As you remember the story, he was blinded for three days. And Ananias finally went to him, and, and then the ministry began. You see, that was on the road of Damascus when Paul saw the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, later on, it talks about him entering into the third heaven. He's even been to heaven and back. Of course, he doesn't understand it because he said he didn't. <laughs> he said, you know, that's why experiences are not appropriate, folks, because you can't prove them. Did you know that? That's why people that are building their whole Doctrinal experiences don't have anything to stand on because you can't prove it to anybody. But if you stand on the Word of God, that's a big difference. Paul said, I was once in the third heaven. I don't know if I was out of the body, in the body. I don't, I, I, I don't know. He's been there. 
but he's seen the resurrected Lord Jesus. That was a quality or a characteristic that had to be there if you were going to be an apostle. Paul was a witness of the resurrected Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7, turn over there. We'll show you again where it's stated that he saw, he witnessed, he perceived that Jesus, he, he perceived Jesus, the resurrected Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7. Verse 7 says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul says, He appeared to all the apostles, James, all the apostles, and then he appeared to me also. So then we see the witness of his apostleship. You had to be a witness of the resurrected Christ to be an apostle. But then, fourthly, Paul speaks of the work of his apostleship. He says in verse 1 of chapter 9, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? The word for work there is ergon. It has the sense of proof of the effort of someone. And what he's saying to the church of Corinth is, you wouldn't be where you are. You wouldn't be who you are had it not been for what God has done through me. You're proof of my work as an apostle. As an apostle, he was one sent forth with a message. He went to Corinth to make tents. Timothy and Silas came over. He began to tell forth that message. And as a result of it, the whole church was born. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, was the first one saved. And he says, you are the very work of my, the fact that I've been sent forth and commissioned by our Lord Jesus Christ. I know it makes me cry too. <laughs> he goes on to call them the seal of his apostleship. He says in verse 2, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The word for seal is spragus. It's the word of a seal of guarantee uh, stamped upon something. When it's used figuratively as it is here, it means a, a promissory note, a token, a pledge, a proof. He says, man, you guys have my seal all over you because you wouldn't be in existence had I not fulfilled what God had put in my heart to come to you. There would be no church in Corinth had God not sent me there. And he says back in chapter 3, I, I, I laid a foundation. Apollos watered, you see, and God gave the increase. So he says, you're the living seal and proof of my being called of God and sent as an apostle. So the proof of his apostleship. Now, if you stopped right there in chapter 9, you say, what in the world is Paul doing? Why does he back off and give proof and defense of himself being an apostle? Well, I think you're going to start seeing it come clear in the next point. First of all, the proof of his apostleship, but then secondly, the privileges of his apostleship. Now, if you want to start comparing rank here <laughs> in the Christian faith, here's one guy says, hey, I'm under grace, brother, I'm free. Well, okay, that's fine, but let's start talking about the apostles, buddy. The ones that God commissioned and set apart for the, where we get the New Testament canon from. Let's find out where their privileges were before you go anywhere else. You see what he's doing? Oh, it's just beautiful to see what he's doing. He proves himself to be an apostle. And then he says, now let me talk to you about the privileges apostles have. And you begin to see his point. Verse 3, my defense to those who examine me is this. Now, the first thing he does, he acknowledges that there are those who would examine his calling and his privilege. Evidently, there were those who put Paul's apostleship to the test. The word for examine is the word anacrino. It's the idea that it means to examine or question in order to bring about a judicial sentence. There were those, and you'll see later on in the epistle where he stands in defense of his apostleship, but there are those who constantly attacked him. Now, what did they examine him about? 
from the context, probably many things, but in the context, it had to do with his freedoms as an apostle because of what he says. Had to be in the area of his freedom. What was he, as opposed to them, being an apostle, what was he privileged to do? What are your privileges, Paul? And they constantly were examining him in light of his freedoms, in light of his privileges. You see, here's the man who preached the message of grace. He's not just somebody who understood it. He so understood it, he preached it to the whole Gentile world. He knew that his standing was in Christ. It was, he said, I, I, I'm, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. He said, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. So he knew where he stood in Christ Jesus. He knew the message of grace as an apostle. And there were people constantly examining him as to privileges they saw that perhaps he had that maybe they didn't understand. But then secondly, Paul gives his exclamation of his privileges. He just shares what they are. He doesn't give them all, but he gives some very emphatic ones. His answers are very clear. First of all, and this is the key one, he had a right to be supported by the churches. That's not what they wanted to hear, but that's what he's telling them. We have a right. Look what he says. He says, do we not have a right to eat and to drink? Now, at first that throws you a little bit. Sure you have a right to eat and drink. What do you mean? He means in the sense of, can he expect the church of Corinth to make sure he eats and he drinks? That's the key. Verse 6, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? You see his point? His point is, uh, we have a right to be supported by the church. When we come amongst you and we're working amongst you, we have a right for you to support us is what Paul says. That's what he says he has a right. He has a privilege to do that. And he never says that's sinful at all in Scripture. It's a right thing to do. But also he had a right to marry if he wanted to and take a wife along with him. Look at verse 5. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas being Simon Peter. Now the King James Version puts the word a sister in there meaning a Christian woman. And that gives you a beautiful picture here. If he's going to ever marry, it's going to have to be a Christian woman. He has a right to do that. And he also has the idea here that I've got a right to come into Corinth if I want to. And if God puts a woman in my path and puts this thing together, I've got a right to marry her. Not only that, I've got a right to take her with me. And you are to support both of us. That's his whole point. That's the privileges he says I have as an apostle. Here we see, by the way, that Paul wasn't married Here's another proof that, that Peter was, and evidently took his wife with him wherever they went. But then thirdly, Paul gives examples from Scripture to support his privileges. Now his main thought here, the main thought, is he has a right to be supported by the churches. That's his main thought. He has a right to eat, to drink. He has a right to marry, and then to be supported by the churches. He says, I have that right as an apostle. He strengthens his point that he as an apostle has the right to be supported by the church. Look at verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense. Now these are clear examples. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Now these are very clear. Let's look at them. First of all, the example of a soldier. A soldier does not serve at his own expense. Why? Because he's doing something for others. So what is the expectation? If he's doing something for others, then others make sure they take care of him. He doesn't serve and then have to go out and take care of himself. He can't because he's got to be focused on what he's doing. So if he's working as a soldier, then the expectation is the ones he's protecting are the ones who take care of him. That's just a principle of life. Secondly, the example of a farmer. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? 
A man who plants a vineyard, listen, folks, he's going to have food for his family. He ought to have food for his family. He did the work. He plowed the field. He, he took care of it all. And there's just a, a necessary understanding in human nature that if you're going to do the work, you receive part of the profit of that work. Thirdly, the example of a shepherd. Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock. I mean, the, the, the examples are so clear, you don't even have to stop and give application to it. The, the principle is, if you're doing the work, then you ought to share in the profit. That's the key. That's the example that he gives. Then he nails his point in verse 8. I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? He said, I'm not just speaking as a man. I'm not speaking to somebody in the barbershop just saying these things just because you know it'll be true. He says, I'm going to take you a step further. The law, and when he refers to the law, he refers to the books of Moses, the first five books of the, New, of the Old Testament. And he says, the law backs me up. The law gives this as a principle. And then in verse 9, he proves what he's talking about. He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now the picture he takes here is from Deuteronomy 25. And verse 4, which says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now, here's the picture. Here's an ox, big old animal. You ever been around an ox? I mean, you say you've been around me. You're, you're a big ox. But have you ever been a real ox, a big ox? Now, these oxen were put and, and they were tied and they'd walk around in a circle. And they would have all the corn, the ears of corn with the husk still on them laying out there. And as the oxen walked on them, it would separate the husk from the ear of corn. And the thought is here, you don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing. In other words, you give him some of the very corn that he's threshing. That's what, what nourishes him to keep doing the job that he's doing. Even an ox gets to reap of the work that he's doing. Comes right out of the book of, of Deuteronomy. Now, Paul is driving home a point here. He asked a question concerning the scripture he just quoted, the very last of it. He says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? <laughs> And the thing hit me is kind of funny. Since oxen can't hear and they can't read, then evidently this wasn't for the sake of the oxen. Evidently this was a principle meant for people to understand, he says. God cares about us. Sure he cares about oxen, but he cares about us. And his whole principle is if you're going to do the labor, you share within the profit of that labor. Then in verse 10, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? That's what he's doing. Yes, he says, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. And that is exactly his whole point. He said, I'm not just speaking this because you see it in human nature and you see it in life. I'm saying this beyond that. The law even says that, the law of Moses. If a man's going to put his efforts into something, he ought to receive the profit back out of that. If anyone should have the right to be taken care of by the church at Corinth or any of the churches that he ministered to would have been the Apostle Paul. He had a right to be supported. If he took a wife, both of them had a right to be supported by the very people they ministered to. This is a principle of life, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 9-11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If others share the right over, over you, do we not more? In other words, if other people can come in and tax you and you give it to them, they didn't do anything for you. And if people can come in and, and share a right over you, what about us who have given our lives, he says? What about us who have, have, have denied ourselves for the sake of the gospel and come in and minister to you? Don't we have a greater right 
to be supported by you? He speaks of himself and Barnabas and those who traveled with him. Well, where's he going with all this? The proof of his apostleship. He talks about the privileges of his apostleship. Remember what his point was in chapter 8? Now you see it start coming clear. He talks now the passion of an apostle. The, that love we talked about, what that love will motivate you to do, even though Paul had the right to be supported by the church at Corinth for the work that he had done among them. Paul had chosen to deny himself of the privilege for the sake of the gospel. This was his own personal choice. No one made him do it, and it was not sinful if he had done it differently. But Paul had chosen because he knew the nature of the people of Corinth and all around. He understood the people that are examining everything that he did. And he, so he made a choice for the sake of the gospel to give up his right, to give up his privileges. He says in verse 12, If others share the right over you, do we not more? And then he says, Nevertheless, we did not use this right but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. The Apostle Paul had chosen to make his own living. He had chosen to go a different route. He had chosen not to get the churches to support him because he knew somehow that would be a hindrance to the people there, especially in Corinth. So now he's saying, I'm expanding the principle of chapter 8. I've got a right. Under God, I've got a right. You can see it in, in, in the world. You can see it in the law. But I've chosen to give up that right. I've given up that privilege. That's his whole point. First of all, we see his passion that led him to refuse his privileges. He says, nevertheless, we did not use this right. The word use this right is the word kreome. Kreome means we did not make the most of this right that we had. You know, some people love to hear their rights. <laughs> Read me my rights. You know, give me a list of all the rights that I have as a believer. And boy, they love to jump on top of it and capitalize it for everything they can milk out of it. But Paul said, we didn't do that. The tense is aorist middle. Aorist tense means we had a choice at a specific given time to do one way or the other. But we made the choice not to exercise this right. And middle voice means nobody influenced us. This was something that we was motivated by the Spirit of God. We actively chose our own selves. So we see then... This passion that led him to make this decision. But secondly, we see the passion that led him to receive what would come because of having made this decision. He says, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Boy, we endure all things is a powerful phrase, and we're not going to cover it this morning. You can write that down. Verse 12 says, but we must endure all things. The word endure is stigo. Now listen to this. Listen to what I mean. It's not the word ipomeno. Ipomeno means to bear up under. That's not what he's saying here. That's not his point. His point is not so much how they were able to bear up under. His point was the attitude with which they went about it. The word stego is the word that means to endure, now listen to me, to endure in silence. To forbear whatever they needed to forbear in silence. The need to take care of their own support, everything else that came as a result of their decision, they were willing to endure it and never say a word about it. You don't hear Paul griping about it. You don't hear him murmuring about it because as an apostle, he knew he had the right to demand it, but he chose not to demand it and he wasn't going to ever say a word about it. He endured it with the kind of endurance that he wants the Corinthians to understand. Why? Verse 12. That we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. The word for hindrance is the word egkape. 
It's an interesting word. It's, uh, it's used, it means to, to delay the gospel. Romans chapter 15, verse 22 says, For this reason I've often been hindered from coming to you. Same word. It is used meaning to impede one's progress. Galatians 5, 7, you were running well. Who hindered, who hindered you from obeying the truth? And then it's used of shutting one down from doing what should be done. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. Same word, same exact word. So Paul says, listen, we've made a decision. I want to expand this principle a little bit. The love of Christ constrains us. We understand that there are people in Corinth that don't, under, that, that don't understand that if we took money from you that that would be right. They don't understand that. They're constantly examining me because I'm an apostle and I'm up here. They're always examining my privileges. And so on my own part, I want you to see how this principle works out, Paul says. I live out what I preach. I've made a choice and I choose not to be supported by the churches. Even though I have a right to, I choose not to for the sake of of the gospel. The most pagan city in the world at that time was Corinth. And they had every kind of skeptic that ever lived in Corinth. And Paul said, I know that. And I know what they're trying to do. So I make a conscious decision to give up my right, to give up my privilege. Paul's illustrating what it means to deny oneself for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Well, we're not going to really get that much further in it. I just want to talk to you a little bit this morning. What privileges do you have that you have come to the place of being willing to give up? Have, have anybody here going through anything like that? Something that you know is right, something that you know is okay, something that you know that God says is granted to you, but you think about it and you think about it and you pray about it and the love of Christ puts a sensitivity within you and you begin to see the people it's affecting around you and so for that reason, you choose to just simply die to that privilege? For the sake of the good news of the gospel, for the sake of the message. I'll tell you what, what are you grumbling about this morning? Heard the funniest thing the other day. It's a time of an offertory. And a fellow, as I was in a meeting, he said, I want you everybody to stand up and I want all the men to reach forward and take the billfold out of the man in front of him and give like you've always wanted to give. <laughs> <clears throat> You see, that's something that says a lot more than just the funny part of it. Because you see, what do we grumble about? What do we gripe about? What are we griping about this morning? Let's just make a list of what are the things you're griping about this morning. Because after all, you have a right. Because after all, you have a privilege. Where's the griping and the grumbling coming from? And I'll tell you what, folks. If this passage has said anything to me, it's helped me to understand one more time the wickedness of our flesh the wickedness of Wayne Barber's flesh, how quick I can be critical, how quick I can tear somebody else down. Why? Because I feel like I have a right to do something and that person somehow is causing me not to be able to do it rather than just go on and die to it and let the love of Christ be seen through that death. Tell you what, folks, division in churches, division in relationships, you think about it. Where does it come from? It comes from people that may have the knowledge, but people that aren't mixed with the love of God. They're insensitive the way they treat each other. And I was thinking the other day, I was in a meeting out in Texas, and these ladies jumped me every time I'd walk in. They said, you post-trib? I said, why in the world they do that? They knew good and well I wasn't. And I said, no. <laughs> every night they'd want to start a discussion on me and post-trib. Just drove me nuts. 
And finally, the last night, I, cut, I, I said to him, I said, listen, ladies, I've changed my mind. I think I'm going to be post-trib. What? And I said, yep. I believe every pastor that I know have already been through the tribulation. I think the congregation ought to go through it. All of us pastors are going to get together and dodge the 100-pound hailstones while the rest of them are out there going through the tribulation. The lady just kind of got kind of funny look on her face. She came forward, by the way, that night and repented of her attitude that week. But I want to tell you something, folks. If, you, if you've ever been in the ministry or anybody like that who's in the limelight, I want to tell you, you think people aren't examining you and examining you in areas where you actually have freedom and they won't give it to you? And you finally come down to the fact you've got scars all over you from what people have said and done. I told Diana one time, I think I could make somebody mad staying in bed. But I tell you where it comes down to. Then God says, okay, big boy, now that you've been offended, now that you've been affected, how are you going to deal with it? And I want to tell you, if you're not filled with the love of Christ, you will not make the right decision. You'll burn your bridges and you'll claim your rights and you'll walk away. And as a result of that, the body of Christ is fragmented. Paul says, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. It's not just what you understand. It is the love of Christ mixed with that understanding. Then you can have a sensitivity to even the people that are examining you to die what you know is right. For the sake of your brother. Ron Lynch is going to be in our equip conference this year. And Ron told me one day, he said, you know what, Wayne? I said, what's that? He said, every day I ask the Lord to show me one new way I can just die to myself. I'll tell you what, when he said that, I thought to myself, dear God, I don't think I've ever prayed that prayer. But since that time, that's been on my mind. Every day. I tell you what, God has taken me serious with it. <clears throat> Folks, listen. The love of Christ is what ought to constrain us. It's not what your rights are, not what your privileges are, and it's not what you understand. It's your deep sensitivity to the needs of your brother. The way you approach him, the way you speak to him, the way you treat him, because when we get to heaven, only those brothers are going to be there. I said it at the beginning of the message. I'm going to say it again. You burn those bridges, buddy. You're going to look awfully peaked when you're standing in heaven next to the one you just burned those bridges with. And you're looking at Christ. My brother, my son-in-law, Eric, I can say a lot of things in this sermon. I'm not going to say in the next one <laughs> because it goes on tape. <clears throat> but that doesn't mean I water down the second one. It just means that I'm a little more careful. Okay, David. But Eric has run into a few things. You know, being in church work, you run into a situation because you're dealing with people. If it wasn't for people, ministry would be fun. <laughs> Eric, as he had head on with some things, as everybody does, it's just people, wherever you are, it's not where he is, it's just people. He called me one day, and everything he told me, just step by step by step by step, he absolutely was right. He was right. Being the father-in-law, I wanted to jump through the phone wires and say, hey, buddy, I'm even bigger than you. Let's go. Me and you can handle this whole bunch. You preach it, I'll whip them. This is go. <laughs> but God kept impressing on me as I was talking to him. Now, this is your son-in-law, Wayne. What do you want him to hear from you? And the more it hit me, I said, Eric, die to it. 
Just die to it. Just die to it. I said, that person who has a conflict with you is more important than what you think is right to do with him. Just die to it. And let God give you a relationship with that person. I love my son-in-law. He's the quickest to respond to truth. I think of any person I have ever met in my entire life. As a matter of fact, to the point, it convicts me. Folks, people, is always going to be in heaven. And I think what Paul is saying here, Woodland Park Baptist Church needs to hear in the 20th century on this particular month, on this particular day. Whoever it is that you've got a problem with, whatever it is you're grumbling about, are you willing to die to it? But I'm right. I know you are. So was Paul. My privilege, I know it is. So it was Paul's. But are you willing to let your knowledge of what's right and your privilege be mixed with the love of Christ to where you won't lose your brother in the context of it? I got a lot on my heart this morning. And I know Diana usually at this point starts calling time out because when I step out from behind the pulpit, leave my notes, that's when she worries. I think the hardest thing for us sometimes is when somebody has offended us or whatever's happened, we think that if we bow to them and deny ourselves, it's going to make them think they're right. Would you raise your hand if you agree with that statement? <laughs> but you see, that's not the issue. The Son of God let the very man He created nail Him to a cross so that out of death could come life. Folks, that's the way we're to live. Bottom line, that's the way we're supposed to live. You pray for me that I'll live that way. And I'm going to pray that you'll live that way. And I'll tell you what you're going to see is people start living out the message that they preach and teach and share because they're willing to deny themselves and bear whatever they need to bear without any grumbling. They bear it in silence, trusting God Himself. This past week as I was studying this, the Lord brought to mind that passage over in 1 Peter chapter 2. Remember when it says, when Jesus, when reviled, reviled not back, but what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. So the bottom line of what Paul is saying is, and really I'm just going to quit because we're not going to be able to finish, and so I just get frustrated at that. We're going to throw it out and just, just stop. What Paul is saying is, are you willing to deny yourself for the sake of others? We're going to be tested, folks, not so much in circumstances. Circumstances seem like most of us can handle given enough truth and enough time. The biggest test you and I are going to have in life is going to be other people. Remember what I'm saying. In the body of Christ, that's going to be the biggest test we're ever going to have. And remember, the more spiritual one always makes the greater concession. It was Jesus who died on the cross, not the disciples. So when it comes down to it, take the low road. Please hear me. Take the low road. Don't ever take the high road. Always be willing to be the wrong one. Never, ever, ever stand as the right one. And you watch how God will honor that in your relationships. And one day when you see them, there won't be that little funny feeling you get on the inside because you've already been to the cross and solved the situation, you see. Because as a believer, you've been willing to deny yourself for the sake of another believer. Bottom line for all of us. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.